I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. This is a documentary series about Tracy Lords, who entered the porn industry at age 15 and left at age 18. There are some who view this as the story of a young girl who was taken advantage of by a brutal industry. There are others who view this as the story of a smart and resourceful young woman who, armed with a legitimate ID, nearly took down said industry, as well as the people in it. There are still others who view this as the story of the unlikeliest of feminist icons. All views will be discussed. These are real-life events. These are real people being interviewed. This podcast contains adult themes and graphic language. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Once Upon a Time in the Valley, Tracy is the porn star that burns the brightest, on screen and off. She loved sex. I remember walking in, she was screwing the owner of the house and his friend somewhere. And I mean, you hardly ever saw her because she was always having sex. And the funny thing is she never invited anyone. She wasn't like, hey, Christy, let's go tag team them. She didn't want to share that dick, you know? Tracy gets a new boyfriend. Stuart Dell was the kind of guy that looked like he'd be hanging out at a nightclub. He had that slick sort of Malibu beach guy look to him, seemed tanned and, you know, like he didn't look like he worked really hard to make a living and he had some angle on everything. And Tracy and Stuart go into business together. She became involved with a boyfriend and together they formed this company, Tracy Lord's company, the TLC company. Tracy at that time was big, huge. You know, she was as big as anybody could be in the industry. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time in the Valley, featuring Ashley West. A young woman widely publicized under the name of Tracy Lords may legally be just a child. That's Dan Rather reporting for CBS News on July 18, 1986, just after the FBI raided Tracy Lords' apartment. The scandal is a shitstorm of biblical proportions, and it's not going to blow over. Before it hits the industry full blast, though, let's go back a bit. Two months back, to be precise. In May, Tracy went to France with her business partner slash boyfriend, Stuart Dell, to make Tracy I Love You. On May 7th, she turned 18. On May 8th, she began shooting. Tracy I Love You will be her final adult movie and her only legal adult movie. Another pertinent detail, Tracy I Love You is produced by TLC, the Tracy Lords Company, which Tracy and Stuart own. Okay, listeners, guess who's an impressionable young college student back in 1986, living in Paris and working on a movie, which happens to be Tracy Jatem. Translation, Tracy, I love you. Ashley, you've been holding out on us. First of all, how did you get this job? Well, I was midway through a French language degree at an English university, and part of the deal was I had to spend a year in France working as a high school teacher. It didn't pay much, so I signed up with an agency for interpreters, and they booked me on a few boring corporate gigs. And then one day, I was offered a job with a Parisian film crew. They'd been hired by a pair of visiting Americans, 
You can imagine my surprise when I got to the set and realized that A, this was an adult film production, and B, that the pair in question was Tracy Lords and Stuart Dell. So you already knew who Tracy was then? I was a horny college kid. My friends were horny college kids. And even in Europe, Tracy was huge. What was your impression of Tracy? What'd she look like? Dressed like? How'd she act? Like a movie star. She was very beautiful, beautifully dressed, took control of the set. She was the one we all looked to. Everyone was in awe of her. Any sense that she might have been underage? None. At the time, I thought she was a few years older than I was. And of course, she was actually a few years younger. But she was so assured, so worldly. She seemed light years ahead of me. Any sense that she might have been high? No. She seemed like a person in complete command of herself. And healthy. She was slim, but not at all underweight. Her skin glowed. She just looked better than everybody else. Curiouser and curiouser. Okay, thanks, Ashley. Now, back to LA, back to July of 86. The news broke. It's out there. Here's adult actor Billy D. They say in the straight world, it's where were you when JFK got shot? In the adult world, it's where were you when you found out Tracy Lords was underage? It's that major of a moment in the industry, a true watershed event. Adult actress Christy Canyon sure remembers where she was. I remember I was in my living room. I don't even, I think I was cleaning or doing something, watching like Entertainment Tonight or one of those kind of gossipy shows. And they said, Tracy Lords, you know, under it, whatever the news thing was. And there was no TiVo or DVR. You couldn't rewind it. And I just remember thinking, oh my God. And then I'd go from like one news station to the next. I think I actually like got out and got a newspaper the next morning. Like I was in shock. Absolutely blindsided shock. There was no way I would have pegged that one. No way. Ashley, everyone we talked to in the industry seems as floored as Christy was. I mean, when we started all this, I figured that industry people knew that it was an open secret, or at least that some industry people knew that some industry people were in on the secret. Because Tracy's from Redondo Beach, which is only 30 miles from the valley. It's part of South Bay, which is part of Los Angeles County. How would word not get out? Because it was the 80s. Because there were no cell phones, no camera phones, no social media, no emailing, no texting. So that 30 miles really counted. The world of Redondo Beach and South Bay was completely separate from the worlds of the valley and porn. That's got to be the case because we asked every person we interviewed, did you have a clue? And it's uh-uh's across the board. And convincing uh-uh's. Here's Ginger Lynn's. Fuck no, I thought she was... The, when I met her... I, I told you, I thought she was the truck driver. No, she had this confidence about her that, you know, you didn't think of her as, as a girl. You thought of her as a woman. Now we all know she was just playing a character. You know, she was pretending to be a grown-up, pretending to be a woman. But she came in, she acted like she wanted to be there. She did everybody that would, you know, do her. And that was everybody. She was so pretty. And it, she just fucked everybody. You know, none of us knew, none of us suspected, none of us, it never crossed your mind. You know, there there was no, oh, you know, some, for me, it was like, yeah, I don't like her. That was there, but there was no, maybe she's on, never. Here's Jim South. I think back then, the agency fee, if somebody shot you, that come to me was 50 bucks. For $50, I'm going to take a chance of being arrested on a felony charge. And the most emphatic denial of all comes from Suze Randall, closer to Tracy than anyone in the industry. Think I would have endangered my children and things just to shoot some chick with big boobs and a good face and a great long tongue? No, Suze. No, we don't. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details.
Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So the media goes gaga for Tracy's story. If porn has been gaining in influence, popularity, and scope thanks to VHS and video cameras, the gains are largely made in secret and in isolation. Only that's no longer so. That Tracy is headline news proves in some obscure but vital way that Tracy has always been headline news. Here's Paul Fishbein, founder of the adult trade magazine, AVN. I remember the LA Times covered it front page. I remember it making television. I do remember seeing mainstream coverage on porn for the first time. It made the national news, that was a big deal. Tracy's bust comes at a bad time for the adult industry because it occurs not months after the release of the Mies Report, not weeks, but days. And the report, which was issued by a commission with the express, if unstated, purpose of bringing down the pornography industry, comes out, surprise, surprise, against pornography. Paul Fishbein again. The Mies Commission was the first major earthquake because the Mies Commission provided a fake overview of the impact of pornography on society with a completely biased right-wing panel of anti-porn, anti-free speech, religious zealots. And I attended Mies Commission hearings in Los Angeles, and it was dreadful. The fix was in, it was all designed to stop the proliferation of pornography and to put a clamp on the First Amendment. And Tracy makes it a double whammy. Here's John H. Weston, an LA attorney who specializes in the First Amendment and who specializes more particularly in the First Amendment as it pertains to the adult industry. Weston argued seven cases in the United States Supreme Court and is the lawyer for porn people. The poster child for the X-rated industry turns out not to have been an adult, let alone a consenting adult. The danger was clear because the potential sentences and the punishment that could be imposed by a court following a conviction or a guilty plea was staggering. The jail terms were real. They were long. They were federal. Just a complete devastation of people's ability to be free. I mean, in one fell swoop, virtually everybody could have been jailed. Everything could have been seized. All existing stocks of materials could have been forfeited and uh, just eliminated from the cultural scene. Tracy Lawrence is the QED of the Mies Commission's wildest dreams. She's also the Mies Commission's best and most effective weapon. If it wields her in just the right way, it can shut down the porn industry for good. So the biggest threat Tracy poses to the adult industry is obviously legal. Here's adult actress and director Veronica Hart. Overnight, she made a whole part of our industry child pornographers. Anybody that had a tape, a video, a reel of Tracy Lords, all of a sudden were kitty porn people. Suze Randall and her husband, adult writer-director Humphrey Knipe, discuss with me and Ashley the ensuing panic. Scratch that. The ensuing terror. When I did hear about it, I just said, oh, that's funny, that sounds like Tracy. You know, I didn't, didn't realize how serious it was. And then once we realized how serious it was, we were running around shredding stuff and throwing stuff in trash bins all over that. town, looking behind us for vice cops. It you was, destroyed everything. How did you actually destroy it? Shredded it. You just took well, negatives? Well, we threw them in black trash bags and looked around for an empty dumpster next to a supermarket. And if it was empty, we knew it would, the pictures would be at the bottom of the trash pile. We threw them in there. And the penalties were horrendous. Horrendous fines per incident. And an incident could be, if there were 36 frames in a, on a roll of film, you could be done for 36 different violations of the Child Pornography Act. You were looking at 
your life in jail at the worst case scenario. We told my daughter, well, mummy and daddy don't come home. You better call this number. We were petrified. We were expecting were... a knock on the door. So we'd shot her more than anybody else. That knock never comes for Susan Humphrey. It does, however, come for Jim South. You would have thought I was Al Capone. There had to have been 30 photographers downstairs when they arrested me and took me out. And Jim isn't the only one getting rousted by law enforcement. His adult actor and director, Paul Thomas, known as P.T. People started getting in trouble. And a guy named Milton Ingley, who's dead now, is my friend. He had a studio and he had hired Tracy and did business with Tracy as an underage model. He had a subpoena and was supposed to appear before the authorities and he was freaked out. And he called me and he says, Tracy Lloyd just turned me in. They're going to put me in jail. If you don't give me $5,000, I'm going to come over there and murder your family. Wouldn't have murdered my family, but he put the fear of God into me, so I took the 5000 and drove over to the valley and gave it to Milton. Legal is, as we said, the biggest threat Tracy poses to the adult industry. But financial is hot on its heels. Here's Paul Fishbein. Everybody had to take all the movies out of circulation, recall them from distributors. Distributors had to recall them from retailers. They had to be destroyed. It was an expensive proposition. These were good, big-selling movies, and she was a big seller, and they lost that revenue. Economic devastation is widespread, as Tom Byron attests. People went out of business and, you know, the whole thing. Half of their library was gone overnight, millions of dollars, you know. And then there's the emotional devastation resulting from the economic devastation. Here's Ginger Lynn. One man went and had to stay in an asylum for a while. I mean, he had based a huge part of his career on Tracy, invested so much time and energy into her, they had to lock him up. And what of the person at the center of this chaos? Where's Tracy? One place she isn't, in trouble. Here's L.A. District Attorney Ira Reiner speaking to the press on July 18, 1986. This Tracy Lord may be a very hard professional today, but she started out as a 15-year-old runaway three years ago when she came out here and was uh, brought in by the pornographic film industry, and she was just so much grist for their mill. So Tracy will not be facing charges. The government considers her the victim in all this. And the people the government considers the villains in all this, the adult industry people, well, their heads are spinning. They go to Tracy for answers, only Tracy can't be found. She doesn't answer the phone, or according to one former co-star, the door, taped to which is a note that reads, I'm sorry, Tracy's not in. Please leave us alone. Go away. Getting arrested is just the start of Jim South's legal troubles. He's indicted, along with Ronald Cantor and Rupert McNee, the producers of Those Young Girls, which Tracy had appeared in in 1984. The charge is violating a statute prohibiting the filming of minors engaged in sexually explicit conduct. The statute carries penalties of up to 10 years in prison and a $100,000 fine. Here's John H. Weston, who represented all three men. The title of the film, Those Young Girls, clearly was something that uh, the government thought uh, had fallen into their lap, leading them to think they died and went to heaven because that was just a perfect choice for exactly what they wanted. The government initiated about five or six grand jury investigations. Those young girls was going to be the test case, so to speak. If you recall from the previous episode, Those Young Girls is the movie Ginger Lynn wrote, starred in, and cast. Ginger doesn't get indicted, but she does get in hot water. Very hot. I bought my first house, and I was living in Beverly Hills. My neighbors were Ricardo Montalban and Dolly Parton and Madonna, and I'm like going, this is fucking awesome. This is great. I'm living with Eddie Holzman, who's a photographer. I remember I got out of the shower, and I had my hair in a towel, and I had a towel wrapped around me, and my boyfriend was doing something, and he didn't hear the door, and I'm like yelling, open the door, open the door, and I, I opened the door in a towel with Tom, I had a towel around my body. And there was a woman and a man, and the woman had her purse, her bag, and I saw a tape recorder in it. You know, I'm, I'm a dirty little girl, and I'm nasty and wild and fun, and I love sex, and I love people, and I love life. But 
I didn't have a parking ticket. And they said, are, are you um, Ginger Lynn? I said to them, you know, you, you asked me Amberlynn, and they, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> they met me. So they came in and asked me to testify against all of these adult film producers, and I refused. The next thing I know, the U.S. attorney came in and said, if you don't testify, we're going to make your life really difficult. Ginger feels she has no choice but to agree to testify. I went before the grand jury and they showed me photographs of Tracy. Who is this person? Who is that person? And, you know, I don't know everybody. I wasn't the person that they thought that I was going to be who could out everybody. And even if I were, I would not have. Fortunately, I have a really bad memory. Leave it at that. Of course, there's no way the government is going to leave it at that. But before we get to the government's revenge for losing to the porn industry, the porn industry's victory over the government... Last episode, we singled out as a crucial detail the passport that Suze Randall secured for Tracy. Here's where it comes into play. I'm now going to read something said by adult veteran Bill Margold, sadly no longer with us, about the passport. Tracy rocked this business and could have crippled this business if it hadn't been for the United States passport. I honestly believe that that single document saved the X-rated industry because I don't think the United States wanted to be culpable. And it's on September 29, 1988, that the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rules that Jim South, Ronald Cantor, and Rupert McNee can defend themselves against criminal prosecution with evidence that they did not know that the actor, Tracy in this instance, obviously, was under 18. John H. Wesson remembers the moment he heard the ruling. I was in a hotel in Washington, D.C. I was about to argue a totally unrelated case in the United States Supreme Court in three or four days. And all of a sudden, there was a knock at the door, and somebody pushed a manila envelope under the door, and I opened it up, and it was like this 20-page opinion that my office had faxed to me. This is pre-scan, pre-email, had faxed to me with the Ninth Circuit opinion. And uh, I think they could have heard me scream at the Washington Monument from my hotel room. I was so proud of the way the system had worked, that the First Amendment had been honored, that we've been able to do good legal work and uh, accomplish what we wanted both for our clients, uh, who we thought very much were innocent, and also at the same time for the industry, which had really striven very, very hard to avoid underage uh, performers in it. The industry, however, is hardly home free. Because when the government can't get you on the big flashy crime, it gets you on the little piddling one. Just ask Al Capone or Tom Byron. I started to get in investigated by the IRS that year. Of course. Me, Harry, and Ginger Lynn because of our high profile. I was high profile. Harry Rooms was high profile. Ginger Lynn was high profile. They went after, the, to, to, to make an example. What happened? I did not pay taxes. I just filed them late. So I had to go through the whole thing and, uh, you know, I was on probation for three years and yeah, it sucked. Sucks harder for Ginger who'd really made the government's blood boil with her convenient memory loss in front of that grand jury. Five years later to the day, I was at Charlie's, I was dating Charlie Sheen at the time, and I was at Charlie's house, and I got the phone call from my attorney saying, you've been indicted. And they tried to charge me with tax evasion, but I'd paid my taxes. And there were three counts that were against me. I was facing six years in prison, and they didn't expect a fight. I had Charlie on my side, and Charlie and his family were extremely helpful uh, financially as well as just moral support. They were there for me during the whole thing. So what happened was I was found guilty on one count. It was over $2,087.04. And so I ended up getting 750 hours of community service. Do you know how many hours 750 fucking hours is? And three years probation. A few months before my probation was over, I was given permission to go to Cannes for the film festival. And I had a film that was in it. And Charlie and I had been off and again on again. So I run into Charlie in Cannes. Now, I have permission to go to Cannes. Um, I don't have permission, however, to go to Vienna, where Charlie is filming Three Musketeers. But I do go to Vienna. <laughs> with Charlie and I'm engaged to someone else at the time. So I'm wearing a ring and so it ends up on the news. So my probation officer actually sees me in Vienna 
So when I get back, I'm immediately drug tested and thrown into federal prison. Like I said, I didn't have a fucking parking ticket. My roommates, I was with uh, an arsonist, uh, a woman who murdered her husband and had just done seven years, and then a credit card thief kind of girl. And the way this whole thing started was because I wouldn't testify against my friends and my family on Tracy Lord's behalf. I was not willing to do that. And I ended up spending $450,000 on a trial for a crime that I did not commit. Obviously, my feelings towards Tracy grew less and less kind, and they were never kind in the beginning. And the IRS is not the only weapon in the government's arsenal. There's also the obscenity law. Here's Paul Fishbein. When the scandal happened, it was horrendous because the Mies Commission led to the obscenity unit in the Justice Department, which led to the raids on the offices of, I think, 80 or 90 adult video companies over a couple-month period and indictments against a ton of them and trials and some people going to jail simply for selling consenting adult material to a consenting adult. And this is Paul Thomas, one of those who gets busted for obscenity on what it's like making adult movies in such an atmosphere. Obscenity was defined by, I'm not sure, but I know it when I see it. That could have ruined the business. That could have put us, because it makes it impossible to do business. It makes it impossible to try to do the right thing. You don't know what the right thing is. We had to present our audiences with hardcore sex. But to stay out of harm's way, in order to do what we thought would not be seen as obscene by a jury, it would take on sometimes the ridiculous specificity of you can spread her cunt this much, but don't use two hands to spread it, just two fingers. You can put in two fingers, maybe three, but don't put in four. And if you put in four, make sure your thumb is like this. You can come on her breasts, not her face. But if you come on her face, not in her mouth. It was ridiculous. While nobody who worked with Tracy on her underage adult films is convicted of a crime relating to those films, one man is convicted for selling them. Ruben Gottesman. First of all, Ashley, what a name. Second of all, who is this guy? Ruben Gottesman, known as Ruby, was a prominent distributor of adult films since the early 70s. His former LAPD detective, Bob Navarro, on how Ruby got busted. I was not in charge at the time, but one of our detectives, Steve Takashida, uh, in another capacity, uh, bought a whole bunch of Tracy Lord's videos after it was determined that she was underage when she did them. Gottsman, knowing there were videos I produced when she was still underage, sold them to uh, Takashida anyway, so he was convicted of distribution of child pornography based on those Tracy Lord's uh, videos. Adult actress Sharon Mitchell herself a minor when she started in porn in New York in the 70s, though an emancipated minor, is called in as a witness at Ruby's trial. I remember the district attorney asking me at the time whether I recalled working with her or whatever, and I said I recalled meeting her on the set, you know, and he said, well, was she naked? And I said, yeah. He said, was she engaged in any sexual acts? I said, I don't recall, because I really didn't. And he said, well... Couldn't you tell that you were working with a minor? And I said, honey, I couldn't tell the difference between a 16-year-old tit and an 18-year-old tit. Could you? Sharon was being a smartass, obviously. But Ashley, I think it's a good question. In The Night of Loving Dangerously, for example, Tracy was 16 and Christy was 18. How could you tell the difference in age between their breasts? Did the DA actually answer? No, he didn't. He deemed Sharon a hostile witness and tossed her out of court. So Sharon doesn't testify at the Gottesman trial. But then, neither does Tracy. Remember Tracy's mother, Patricia Bryceland? That's who Tracy gets to testify on her behalf. Gail Holland, then a reporter for the Copley News Service, covered the trial. Holland and I discuss her memories of Bryceland. She was basically, she's like a bespectacled redhead. I think she was pretty impassive. I mean, you're in a federal courthouse. That can be a very intimidating place with this guy who's accused of federal crimes, you know, from the highest levels of the Department of Justice. And they showed her a bunch of clips 
of her underage daughter in these various movies with these outrageous titles. It's a very disturbing situation for her, I'm sure. And then of the reason Bryson gave, which presumably Tracy gave Bryson, for why Tracy never went to the cops, told them she was underage. Her mother also said that she was afraid that some of the people in or around the Goddessman operation would kill her. The LA Times quotes Bryceland on the witness stand exactly. Quote, Tracy told me that if I went to the authorities, the people she was involved with would kill her. She told me to keep my mouth shut or I would get her in terrible trouble. End quote. So Tracy was scared of incurring the wrath of the mob. That's what she's saying via Bryceland, right? Not quite saying, but implying, since the word mob is never used. In her memoir, Underneath It All, Tracy explains how Bryceland came to be in the courtroom in her stead. A few months after the scandal broke, there was a mother-daughter reconciliation. Ashley, will you read? Of course. It was time to call my mother. The first thing I said to my mother was, I'm so sorry. She told me I was going to be okay, but I wasn't so sure. I knew I couldn't be okay with prosecutors torturing me on a daily basis, and my mother volunteered to testify in my place. You would do that for me? Absolutely, she said. I'm here for you. My mother's willingness to testify in my place gave me room to heal and proved to me that I really did matter to her. After all the battles we'd fought against each other, we were finally on the same side. Heartwarming words. In a 1990 profile in GQ magazine, Tracy uses less heartwarming words. She tells writer Pat Jordan, I got out of every subpoena. It cost me a lot of money. My mother testified for me and the judge bought it. Well, I don't know if I buy it. In New York in the 70s, the mob ran the adult business, using tried-and-true mob methods, extortion, racketeering, and of course intimidation. But when the business moved to Los Angeles and to video, the mob lost its grip. Lower costs, both for movie production and video duplication, meant that just about anyone could enter the business. And there simply weren't the same kind of money-making opportunities. Here's Sharon Mitchell. Honestly, as far as a mob presence goes in Los Angeles, it was nothing like, in New York, it was more like, you know, my Dutch Uncle Louis or my Italian Uncle Vito, you know. In Los Angeles, it was like they sent the idiot nephews out there that a lot of them, you know, they just weren't playing with a full deck. They didn't have the big budgets that they had to work with. So I guess they felt comfortable shuffling all the kind of the dumb cousins and nephews out here to start the video companies. And that's really the truth. That's how I felt it. Sue's definitely doesn't buy it. That's a total lie that Tracy was scared by the mob. She would have fucked them all anyway if they were there. No, no, that's a mother trying to make up excuses for her daughter's behavior. No, that's nonsense. In any case, Tracy's fears, if she indeed had them, were quickly assuaged by John H. Weston. There was some suggestion from my clients that she, Tracy, was very fearful that she faced physical jeopardy and physical harm from some uh, elements of the industry. And they said, you know, please make sure that she understands that there is no physical harm or no jeopardy that she's facing. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do so. So she came to my office, not as a client, made that very clear to her when she came in. I had never met her before. I was anxious to see her so I could communicate that to her to take this young person and stop her anxiety when I was absolutely confident that there was nothing that she had to fear. And then the next step came uh, when she said, well, is there somebody I could recommend to her? And it was one of those things sort of like, oh, well, funny you should ask, because the uh, person I most wanted to refer her to is maybe the only person in the country I would have referred her to was a dear close friend of mine who also fit the bill perfectly, Leslie Abramson, who uh, obviously female, attitude-wise, and toughness and legal skill would be absolutely perfect for Tracy, uh, would protect her, would make sure that she was properly advised so that she, Tracy, could make the best decisions for her. Tracy agrees that Abramson is perfect for her. She lavishes praise on Abramson and underneath it all, calling Abramson the first protector in my life. And yet Weston, who goes out of his way to do right by her, she trashes. While she does acknowledge that it was he who led her to Abramson, She also says that he publicly stated that she was washed up and that she, quote, would never make anything out of herself. Weston seems shocked when I read these words to him. His response. It's just not possible I would have said that. 
Uh, it's not possible because putting it in the most crass, it would have been a stupid thing to say in terms of alienating or uh, making uncomfortable a witness whom I very much wanted to obviously be helpful to my clients. On the other hand, I wouldn't have said it just at a human level. Not possible. I understand why Tracy would elevate Abramson, but why denigrate Weston, who had been kind to her at a difficult time? I don't know. Maybe because in her memoir she presents just about every person in the adult industry as a scumbag. Definitely every man in the adult industry as a scumbag. And Weston is an adult industry lawyer. And of course, he's a man. Hey, Mama, we see you. All the visible and invisible work you do for others and yourself. That's why this Mother's Day, the Meditation for Women podcast has a special free guided meditation just for you. Stay to listen to hundreds of guided meditations available for you. Some to help you sleep, start your day, release anxiety, and tune into your intuition. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we've discussed the FBI bust, the aftermath of the FBI bust, without answering the essential question. Who ratted out Tracy to the FBI in the first place? That question truly is essential. It's the key to the mystery at the heart of the Tracy Lord story. Answer it and you solve the mystery. It doesn't take long for rumors to begin circulating. That a jealous ex had turned Tracy in, or a jealous rival. That her mother owned all the rights to her titles and was using the scandal to drive up the price that she'd been paying off her father in Steubenville to keep quiet about her real age. And when she stopped shelling out, he squealed to get back at her. And of course, Tracy says she doesn't know, but suspects that it was her mom's creepy ex, the man she calls Roger Hayes in her memoir. Really though, there's only one theory among industry people. Suze Randall articulates it. I often wondered if she didn't let the cat out of the bag herself. Tom Byron is less equivocal. I think she had this in her mind from the get-go. You know, like, you know, she used to say to me, this porno is going to be my stepping stone to big Hollywood. Ginger Lynn is less equivocal even than Tom. Tracy's just a cunt. She's just a two-faced, backstabbing, dead-eyed bitch. I hope her tits rot and fall off. I really cannot stand her. It all comes down to Tracy's last adult movie and the timing of Tracy's last adult movie. Cameras start rolling on Tracy I Love You the day after Tracy turns 18, and the rights to Tracy I Love You belong to TLC, i.e. Tracy's recently formed company. Follow the money, the adult industry says. Who stands to profit from having all of Tracy's underage adult movies off the shelves? The individual who owns the rights to Tracy's one, of age, adult movie. And that's Tracy. To adult actor Tim Connolly, it's a whodunit that anyone with a room temperature IQ can solve. It's really simple. You know, you didn't have to be Columbo to figure it out. Every movie she shot, and there were shitloads of them, was now illegal, except for the movies that she made and happened to own. Gee, you know. And speaking of timing, Tracy's is uncanny. She's a centerfold in the issue of Penthouse magazine that's going to sell better than any issue in Penthouse history because of the Miss America dethroning. She enters adult movies at the very moment the industry is booming, and she exits at the very moment it goes bust. Here's Tom Byron on the bust. Dude, 84 and 85 were magical years. Things started kind of like fucking falling apart in 86 because the Mies Commission report came out, people started getting busted. Tracy Lord's revelations came out. Those three things fucked up a good thing. And AIDS. If I had a cold that lasted for longer than a couple of days, I was convinced, oh God, I got AIDS. But uh, the first casualty in any kind of economic crunch is a talent. So we became a casualty of everyone having to spend money on legal fees. Everyone's rates had to go down. So I had to work more for less money. Tracy, on the other hand, is not hurting for money at all. In fact, she's rolling in it when she sells the rights to Tracy I Love You to the adult studio, Caballero, for $100,000. So I'll refer to Ashley as the studs turco of porn. Well, he's also the Sam Spade. He tracked down the then-owner of Caballero, this man who sold Caballero back in 1990, 
and who now lives in semi-retirement in Arizona, a local business owner and pillar of the community, requested that we not use his name, though it isn't hard to figure out what that name is. He doesn't even want his voice used, so I'm just going to tell you what he said about Tracy I Love You. Bear in mind, these are his exact words, not an approximation. I said to him, I was wondering if in addition to a lump sum, Tracy got a royalty. He said, and again, this is a direct quote, she did, she got a royalty, it was done through her manager. I said, oh really, that's interesting. He said, oh yeah, she got a generous royalty. It ran for many years. So basically, that 100K was just the beginning of the money Tracy was going to see for Tracy I Love You. And incidentally, by which I mean not incidentally at all, Tracy I Love You is the best-selling release of 1987, also of 1988, and of 1989. Additionally, in 1988, Tracy I Love You would take home a top prize at the AVN Awards, the Porn Oscars. Tracy might still be the porn star with the mostest in 1988, but she's trying to become a mainstream actress. She's cast in Jim Wynorski's remake of Roger Corman's Not of This Earth, a B-picture, if you're grading on a curve, and very close to sexploitation. Nevertheless, very close to sexploitation isn't sexploitation. And she is the lead. And not only is Tracy now trying to become a straight star, she's saying that she never meant to be a porn star, that the adult industry had taken advantage of her. She appears on the television news magazine program, A Current Affair, to discuss how degrading the experience was. I went home and I remember being in the shower for a very long time. But you can't wash that off. That's the problem. If you could wash it off, you'd be fine, but you can't. The adult industry scoffs at her claims that it used and abused her. Here's Ginger Lynn. I peed my pants when I heard it. (laughs) And here's Veronica Hart and Suze Randall. She hijacked the industry. And she caused problems for the industry, not the other way around. She wasn't a victim. She can't play the victim. She's not a victim. She's not a victim. No, she's an abuser. Adult actress Anne Boleyn makes a compelling point regarding Tracy's company, TLC. If you really break down what is being said and the behavior, you go, you are being exploited. Well, who is exploiting you? Your own, yourself? Were you exploiting yourself? You owned your own company. How are you being exploited by the porn industry when you own your own company? You are the exploiter. You are not the exploitee. You know what I'm saying? What further pisses off the adult industry is Tracy's decision to go mainstream, but to stick with her nom de porn, to in fact make her nom de porn her official nom. Tracy claims that she did this after she was hired for a modeling job under the name Nora Kuzma, and then fired when the company found out Nora Kuzma was also Tracy Lord's. The way Tracy presents it, she's making the honest and honorable choice. Veronica Hart and Suze Randall, however, don't see it as either. They see it as opportunistic and mercenary. I think she got mileage off her name. She got in because of the name that she made in porn. It's a great career move. uh, Yeah, because she would have gotten nowhere without all this anyway. We should address too Tracy's claim, Tracy's paradoxical claim, that though she was taken advantage of by the adult industry, the entire period she was in the adult industry is one big blank due to her excessive drug and alcohol consumption. Here's Tom Byron's response. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. She wasn't so drugged out that she couldn't run. Bullshit. She was never fucked up on set, ever. And here's Christy Canyons. I personally, I'm no therapist by any means, but I think that she was knocking the business to make it seem like she was the victim. Okay, now I want to get into mainstream, but everyone's going to remember the name. But I didn't really like what I was doing. I was forced to do it. You weren't forced to do it, Tracy. None of us were forced to do anything. No one had a gun to her head. She had fun on sets, you guys. I was there with her. She liked it when I ate her damn pussy out. Like, she had fun on the sets. We all did. I never saw her do drugs. I never saw her show up drunk. I never saw her... She never offered me drugs. She never asked me if I had drugs. I think that that was all a cover-up so she could transition into mainstream. I get she did what she had to do, but I'm sorry that she felt she had to lie about good people to get to where she went. Ashley, this is interesting. In the 1990 GQ profile, 
Pat Jordan presses Tracy on her claim that she's unable to remember her porn years because she was in a drug haze. She drops her guard for a moment, grins at him, and says, I can't talk about my past. NBC is making a movie of my life, and I don't want to spill all my cookies. And adding insult to injury is Tracy's insistence on pretending that the adult industry people no longer exist now that she's no longer in the adult industry. On a 1996 British talk show, she's asked by host Gabby Roslin if she ever encounters her old porn colleagues. But those people now, do they ever come knock at your door? They're so same no. people. You wouldn't live. I live in a completely different world. I do. And it's great. She doesn't, of course. She still lives in LA, still works in the entertainment business. But she behaves as if she does. And a number of her ex-colleagues told us about seeing her at a party or an event around town and getting cold-shouldered. When she runs into adult actor and former co-star Herschel Savage, a year or two after the scandal, however, she's icy. But she doesn't freeze him out entirely. There was one video convention where she had already crossed over, and she was getting some success as an actress, and I was at the convention for porn and stuff, and I was walking around, and I saw her signing autographs. And uh, I just walked, you know, I not put myself in her face, but I stood off to the side, and she looks up and she goes, Hello, Herschel. But it was almost like, yes, I acknowledge you. That was that kind of thing. It wasn't mean in any way. It was almost like, yeah, I guess I have to deal with this, you know, kind of thing. Subtle. When Tracy runs into Tom Byron in 1989, she isn't just trying for legitimacy. She's achieved it. No more cheapy pictures with can't-get-arrested directors and shoestring budgets for her. No, she's landed a major role in the feature film Crybaby, directed by John Waters, a bona fide auteur, and starring Johnny Depp, a bona fide movie star. Moreover, while filming Crybaby, she'll fall in love with its prop master, Brooke Yeaton, a godson of John Waters, and she'll marry Brooke a few months after Crybaby's premiere in a ceremony performed by Waters himself. In 1990, she'll even have a TV movie of her life story in the works with a major network, NBC, as she alluded to in that GQ interview. There's talk of Christina Applegate, whom Tracy will become close friends with a year later when Tracy guest stars on Married with Children, playing Tracy. So Tracy's in the position she likes best, on top. Here's Tom. I bumped into her one time at a VSCA show, like maybe three years after the, the whole thing broke, and I actually stood in line for an autograph, and she didn't see me until I was right there. And I said, to Tom? She looked up, gave me a look like, what the fuck, dude? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and she kind of like, uh, to Tom, blah, 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 blah. But was giving me the look with her eyes like, dude, I'm like, come on, man. You're fucking my shit up. Get out of here. So I just kind of like walked away. And it was like, uh, but that was it. Okay, listeners, that's the end of part two. Little Red Riding Hood's Revenge or the Tracy Lord story as told by the adult industry. If you had to sum up the Tracy Lord story as told by the adult industry in a line, it would be this. The Tracy Lord story, as told by Tracy Lords, is a lie. Which means that Tracy's memoir, underneath it all, literally the Tracy Lord story as told by Tracy Lords, is also, according to the adult industry, a lie. It's difficult to know, though, how much weight to give the charge. After all, Tracy almost destroyed the adult industry. The adult industry, therefore, is motivated by revenge. Naturally, it's going to say that Tracy's book, which makes it look quite bad, is nothing but fabrication and distortion. Only, it's not just the adult industry saying that. No, I'm not easily surprised, Lily. But when you found what you found, I was floored. I've been covering this subject for 20-odd years now. I'd always thought it was Tracy versus the adult industry. Her word versus their word. Yeah, it knocked me out too. And I stumbled on it by quasi-accident when I was doing a newspaper search for something else Tracy-related. It's a letter. One that was printed in the LA Times on August 10th, 2003, after Underneath It All was published. And it was written by Tracy's younger sister. I'll read it to you. Contesting Lords. I'm writing in regard to your recent article on Tracy Lords and her new book, Underneath It All. As Tracy's sister, I can tell you that underneath it all is more of the same. Tracy is once again portraying herself as someone she is not and getting away with it because no one is bothering to check out her story. 
I love my sister, but I hate what she's doing. Her memoir doesn't set the record straight. It further distorts an already convoluted family tragedy. I thumbed through a copy of Underneath It All after hearing that Tracy had, without my knowledge or consent, included mention of me. Clearly, the publishers didn't bother with any fact-checking. Tracy's account contains factual errors, draws on circumstances that Tracy wasn't even aware of at the time, and turns on an event, being raped, that frankly, I just don't think ever happened. It's painful to have your childhood traumas dug up, twisted, and put on display. Tracy is a survivor, but her book is misleading and self-aggrandizing. My sister has hurt many people over the years with her deceptions and half-truths. Sadly, she still does. Rachel Kuzma, Los Angeles. Next time on Once Upon a Time in the Valley. You think this is all there is to the Tracy Lord story? Think again. There's a part three, and it's the most shocking yet. She sat next to me in Ms. Moore's class, and she was just really sweet and kind and gentle. It's an almost like a hippie persona, but not a hippie persona. She's just a sweetheart, man. This has been a presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, executive produced by Chris Corcoran and me, Lily Analik, directed by Zach Levitt, created and written by me, produced by Ashley West, edited and mastered by Chris Basil, Bill Schultz, Perry Crowell, and Ian Mont. Theme music and original score by Joel Goodman. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malangone. Field recording by Rich Berner. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Once Upon a Time in the Valley is hosted by me and Ashley West. Thanks for listening. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.